Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. Turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke chapter 22 on page 829. Uh, we're going to talk this morning about prayer and about uh, Jesus's prayer uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of, of Olives, kind of his, uh, the, the eve before uh, the day when he's going to be crucified. This is kind of the, the culmination of his life and ministry up until this point. And Jesus kind of retreats and he's praying to his, his father. He's just finished the Lord's Supper, the last supper that he uh, enjoyed with his uh, disciples. And so Jesus knows full well at this point that he's about to be uh, betrayed by Judas. He knows full well that he's about to be denied uh, by, by Peter. He knows full well that he's going to die on the cross the next day. And kind of in that space, his instinctive response in the midst of all of that uh, hardship and turmoil and difficulty is to go and meet with his father, spend time with his father, He recognizes that it's going to be difficult. Jesus recognizes that he's about to walk through the worst suffering that any human being uh, has ever uh, experienced. To brace for that and to prepare for that, he goes to, to pray. Like Jesus knows that prayer is not some secondary you know, like a luxury that we uh, may uh, decide to avail ourselves of. It's kind of an optional practice. Jesus recognizes, and we would do well to recognize that prayer is this like lifeline. Prayer is, uh, it's, it's something that God has given us to help us persevere uh, through the Christian life, through seasons and moments and circumstances where we otherwise would fall away. Jesus gives us prayer to keep us um, in the faith when our strength is not enough. So it's not an accessory. It's not a luxury. It's kind of an essential, you know, mission. It, the prayer is like a parachute for a skydiver or, a, you know, a oxygen tank for a scuba diver. It's, it's, not, it's not something that you can uh, decide to avail yourself of. It's something that we need and something without which we will, we will die and we will kind of wither up and, and, and perish. And so... We're going to look today at what is admittedly a, a pretty hard uh, text, a tough text to read and think about. It's heavy. We're going to look at how Jesus prays on the precipice of the worst moment of his life, the worst moment of any human life ever. And we're going to consider what we can learn about how to pray from how Jesus prayed in this, in this moment. So let's read verses 39 to 46, and then we'll get to work. It says, He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, um, we, this is a tough text. It's intense. It's weighty. It's graphic. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace as we read it. Lord, help us to learn from your example so that we can pray well, so that our prayer lives can can bring glory to your name and that they can edify and encourage our souls and help us to to dig in and, and persevere and remain faithful to you even through difficult circumstances. We'll ask it in, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we'll start with uh, 39. If we want to flip back one slide, uh, Fred. Verse 39, it says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. So I'm going to walk through a handful of of points. Um, Sometimes my sermons have, like, nice, tidy, pithy points that you can write down and remember. Sometimes they don't. It just kind of depends on uh, if the text lends itself to them. This one uh, does. And so the first point uh, is to pray now. So he came out and went, as was his custom, uh, to the Mount of Olives. So pray, pray now. Jesus, again, is on the precipice of the worst, most violent, most intense whirlwind of persecution and suffering imaginable. And it makes perfect sense in that moment that he would go to pray. It's nothing surprising or scandalous to us. Most of us can relate to being on the, the precipice of something big or scary and, you know, and praying. Right, you pray before uh, something that's that's dangerous. Pray before something that makes you nervous. Wedding, interview, right? Kid gets his driver's license, leaves the house alone for the first time. You know, in a foxhole, live bullets flying right. There, there are any number of scenarios which kind of make us. You know, it's it's not uh, surprising or scandalous to think of someone praying in those uh, scenarios. A friend of mine uh, actually became a believer in the midst of a cancer diagnosis. He was confronted with his own mortality and that of his spouse it kind of brought him to the end of himself and he actually prayed never prayed before but he prayed in that moment and actually trusted christ in that that moment so there's nothing surprising about praying uh in the middle of or on, on the outset of on the on the you know eve of a big scary event but it says uh, he came out and went as was his custom implying that jesus had gone to the mount of olives and prayed a lot, over and over, making a habit out of it. When no one was looking, he would sneak away and meet with his father to pray. He would spend unhurried time with his father. He would pour out his heart and his soul to his father. It's not something that Jesus only did when life got turbulent and hard. It's something that he did all the time, even when it was going, when it was going well. When life got hard... It was second nature, right? It was Jesus uh, knew, uh, you know, going to God and praying and spending time with him was nothing, uh, you know, it wasn't an anomaly or it wasn't foreign to him because it was a, a habit that he had, had cultivated, right? Cultivate the habit of praying now, make it a custom in your life now, and then, uh, you know, when crisis hits, your prayer life will be established and fortified, right? You'll never... You will never pray better in crisis 
than you prepared beforehand, right? How you respond in crisis will always be determined by how you prepared beforehand. You'll never be a, you'll never be a better prayer than you are seeking to become right now in this moment. You don't fall backwards accidentally into Christian maturity. You have to aspire to it. You have to pursue it. You have to work at it. You have to work hard now to pray now so that when life is difficult, you will be able to lean back on your, on your prayer life. I'm going to use sports analogies. What do you got to do? Um, I love football. I love watching football Saturday, Sunday, <clears throat> and you watch football on Sunday and it's like, these athletes doing incredible, like things that border on superhuman, how high they jump, how fast they run, pressure, two-minute drill, right? You have to drive the length of a field and score a touchdown. The game is on the line, right? Plays are perfectly choreographed. Eleven players anticipating what everyone else is doing, executing together. Guy throws a football 60 yards, hits a target the size of a soda can, right? And you watch and you think, these guys are incredible. How do they do it? And it's because they practice all week, right? Six days all week long, they're practicing running drills, rehearsing plays, recreating game conditions, watching hours and hours of film, memorizing every possible look that the defense could give them and kind of associating it with what is going to happen on the upcoming play based on what they see before the the snap. They prepare relentlessly all week long so that when Sunday rolls around, the pressure's on, they're ready. And they just kind of lean on their training. They lean on the habits that they created in practice. How you respond in crisis will be determined by how you prepare beforehand. So be preparing now in peacetime so that you'll be equipped and ready in in wartime. Cultivate good, healthy habits of prayer now before a crisis hits. So that they'll be in place when a crisis hits, right? So, so now, whether you're in crisis or not, right? Be, you know, building hat, go for a walk and pray, you know, during your commute, turn off the music or podcast and, and pray, pray for your spouse, your kids, your family, your church, make a list of, of things to pray for and take five minutes every day to revisit it and pray for those things and note how the Lord has been answering your prayers on those things or add things to it. Don't, don't wait to pray later when crisis hits. Pray now. That's point one. Point two is from verse 40. And he came to the place and he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So verse 39, pray now. Verse 40, pray together. Jesus doesn't, I mean, Jesus could have said, all right, Lord's Supper is over. Last Supper is over. Uh, go, everyone retire to your respective homes. I'm going to go pray by myself. He doesn't. He brings his friends to pray. This is Jesus, who is God, the second member of the Trinity, right? There has never been anyone stronger or better or less in need of a community, less in need of people to lean on and people to pray for him and people to pray with him. No one has ever needed that less in all of human history than Jesus. And Jesus asks his friends to come and pray with him and pray for him. He recognizes that he would be a better prayer if his friends were there with him. And if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, needs and leans on his friends and his community to help him pray, stands to reason we could probably use that too. Right? Jesus didn't 
save us into a vacuum or into a silo of of isolation and individualism. He saved us into a church, brought us into a church so that we could pursue Christ together, walk with Christ together, pray for one another, pray with one another, become better prayers together as a church. That's God's intention for the church and for your prayer life is is to lean into it with other believers. Too often we think that prayer is exclusively this uh, personal, private matter that's just between me and God and no one else is involved. But we neglect to also consider the unique potential and power of corporate prayer. It's not that it's, we don't necessarily neglect the power of corporate prayer intentionally. It's just something that happens uh, if we have an anemic view of the local church, right? Weak ecclesiology does not generate a strong prayer life. And our our best shot at cultivating a stronger prayer life is to think about how we can uh, congregationalize our prayer life, right? How can we be praying for other members of our church to encourage them and help them? How can we lean on other members of our church and have them pray for us so that we can be encouraged and helped. One theologian puts it this way. Can we go to the one by John Anwuchekwa? Um, it's, I think it might be yeah, after, the, after the Bible verse. It says, prayer was never meant to be merely a personal exercise with personal benefits. But rather, it's a discipline that reminds us how we are personally responsible for others. This means that every time we pray, we should actively reject an individualistic mindset because we're not just individuals in relationship to God, but we're part of a community who have access to the same, we have the same access to God. Prayer is a collective exercise. All right, quick survey. How many people here, raise your hand, you are entirely satisfied with and, and frankly, proud of your prayer life, how often you pray, how much you pray, how emotionally and spiritually engaged you are when you pray, your faithfulness to pray. You never feel guilty about prayerlessness, right? You think that your life should be held up as the prototype, the gold standard that everyone else should look to and emulate and follow, right? If you want to learn to pray, look at me, observe me because I have prayer down pat and I don't have any room to to improve in that area. How many people here think that that is an accurate assessment of your prayer life? Show of hands, right? None of us feel that way. None of us feel like we don't have room to grow or improve in our prayer life. If you're like me, you probably walk around with this kind of perpetual, low-grade guilt because we feel like we should be praying more than we are, better than we are. We feel self-conscious. We feel stuck. We don't know how to proceed in our prayer life. I've got good news for you, right? Jesus shows us how to grow in our prayer lives. And it's to pray together. It's to pray with other believers, to invite other believers to help you and encourage you in your prayer life. And as it turns out, we actually have a monthly member meeting where we pray together, right? We set aside the lion's share of our member meeting airtime is for corporate prayer. Pray for our church, 
Pray for the preaching of the gospel at the church. Pray for our souls, our marriages, our families, our ministry to our community and our our neighbors. So, if you think and you are confident that your prayer life is perfect, no need to improve, no room to grow, then then feel free to not feel free to neglect our member meetings because you probably don't need them. But if your prayer life is not perfect, if you have room to grow, if you if there is uh, room for you to be encouraged by other believers, if you find it easier to pray uh, with other believers, there's kind of a galvanizing, synergistic effect to being with other people, praying together with them. Come to our member meetings and pray with your with your church. It's once a month, twelve times a year. We intentionally make it so that it's not frequent enough to be burdensome but so that it is frequent enough to be regular and, and helpful. So if you're a member, we invite you to come to our member meetings, pray with and for your fellow church members. If you're not a member, we would invite you to come and kind of observe and look on, right? Kind of uh, join with us as we gather together to pray and to kind of uh, think together and kind of be believers t- together. So, so verse 39 is pray now. Verse 40 is pray together. In verse 41, pray alone, which is like the opposite of what I just said. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and and prayed. So Jesus does, and we should lean on our brothers and sisters in Christ, small group, church, family, community. It's a good practice to be in, and Jesus also withdraws to have a private moment between himself and his father. He recognizes that it's important to be encouraged by others in our prayer life and to be helped by them. And it's also important to communicate with his father, with our father, to have to have time and space to interact with him and to say things that we would only say when we are alone with him. Your soul needs to pray together with other believers and your soul needs to pray alone with your father. It's like, like, any, like a marriage or like any relationship, right? It's unquestionably good and healthy and wise for married people to have friends and a church family and you know a network of, of people to support them, spend the holidays with go on double dates with, right? Whatever, right? The, the husband needs male friends that he can seek counsel and accountability from and confide in. The wife needs female friends that she can confide in and seek counsel from so that they can learn to be better spouses. They need other people. They need a community and they need time alone. They need time to communicate. They need time after the kids are in bed to make eye contact and talk with each other about what's going on in their souls and in their marriage they need to talk about you know their hopes and aspirations and their fears and and regrets they need to you know have dinner together at their favorite restaurant they need they need uh years of deepening friendship so that they can you know be intimate together and and know and be reassured in their souls that their spouse is committed to them and loves them and will do anything to protect them and care for them those are things that that can only be done alone, just the the two of them. So they need friends, they need family, they need community, and they need time alone. Our relationship with God is the exact same way, right? Our prayer life is the 
is the exact same way. We need other people to pray with us and for us, and we need time to be with God and pray and process and grow. And, and I mean, if, you're, if your prayer life is 100% alone, 0% together, if it's entirely relegated to those few moments that you find between you and God, then, then your prayer life is, is lacking. It's missing some key elements that God intends for it to have. And if your prayer life is 100% together and 0% alone, if it's relegated entirely to prayer meetings, before meals, small groups, right? And apart from those things, there's just radio silence between you and God 24-7, then your prayer life is, is, is lacking. So be intentional pray to, to pray together with others. Be intentional to pray alone, right? Go on, again, like I said, go on a walk. Put it on your calendar. Turn your phone off. Turn off your screens, right? Set a, set a timer for 15 minutes, five minutes or two minutes, right? And pray until it dings and tells you to stop, right? right. Uh, carve out space for silence and solitude to pray to God and cultivate the habit of praying alone. Pray now, pray together, pray alone. That kind of gives us insight into, you know, when, right? Pray now and maybe the, the, the context of prayer together and, and alone. But in verse 42, we actually see the the actual shape and texture of Jesus' prayer that can inform how we, you know, how we pray. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Pray now, pray together, pray alone, pray honestly. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. God, here's who I am, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I'm experiencing, here's what I'm worried about, here's what I'm scared about, here's what I really wish that you would do for me, right? Transpa- all, all my cards are on the table. Jesus pays, prays with brutal honesty. And his prayer is that the Father would remove the cup from him. which we get more insight into as we read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. You see that God is holy and righteous and glorious and sovereign. He creates humanity because He loves them and wants to be in relationship with them. Humanity rebels against God. And because God is holy and righteous, He hates sin he hates rebellion. He hates injustice. He's angered by it. The, the, uh, the response from God to human sin is anger and fury and, and wrath. And the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament uses the image of that wrath being poured into and stored up in a, a cup. Psalm 75, at the appointed time, I will judge with equity. The boastful, the wicked, all the inhabitants of the world. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the, to the dregs. Ezekiel 23, the cup is deep and large, a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and, and drain it out. Revelation 14, for anyone who does not trust in Christ, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. God's anger, fury, wrath is poured into a cup. It's stored in a cup. It's terrible. It tastes bad. It makes you drunk. It makes you stagger around, reeling in pain. And at some point, God is going to give this cup of His wrath to every person who has ever sinned against Him. And He'll make them drink it all the way down to the last drop and experience the fullness of the, of the horror of His terrible wrath. It's so bad that it will take an entire eternity to pour out the cup of God's wrath on sinners. That's how bad it is and how extensive that it is. And we all deserve to drink it. But the miracle of the gospel is that when Jesus went to the cross, he bore the wrath that was meant for us. He satisfied the just demands of a righteous God. Right, A God who says that there must be payment for sin, there must be satisfaction, it cannot go unpunished. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that was meant for us, that would have taken an eternity to pour out on us. Jesus drank it and drained it in its entirety in three hours on the cross. If you refuse to trust in Christ, you will stand before God, give an account for your life, and then He will give you the cup of wrath that you deserve, and you will spend eternity consuming it and suffering. Or, you can trust in Christ. Let Jesus drink the cup of wrath that you deserve, so that when you stand before God, He won't give you a a cup of wrath, He will give you... He will give you a a commendation. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Come and enter into your rest. That's what Jesus deserves to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We deserve a cup of wrath. And if you trust in Christ, those are, are switched. Right? You are commended and welcomed into the presence of God the Father because Jesus bore the wrath that was deserved by you. And so here, on the eve of, on the outset of that moment, that event where Jesus is going to bear the wrath of God, He's contemplating it, and He doesn't want to do it. He says, I... I don't want to drink this cup of of wrath. If there's any other way that doesn't involve me being separated from you, you turning your back on me, you pouring your wrath for sin out on me, please don't let, I don't want, I don't want to do it. So much of our prayers lack real honesty. So much of our communication lacks real honesty. How are you doing? Fine. How's the family? We're doing great. In reality, we're in deep distress, right? We, we you know, money is tight. It's difficult to make ends meet, right? I'm not sure if I'm going to, you know, not sure how much longer I'm going to be with my current employer, 
right? There's too much to be done and not enough time. My spouse and I haven't had a chance to sit down and communicate. Our marriage is in trouble. Our kids are having behavioral issues, right? They seem to be losing interest in God and in the gospel, and I'm really worried about their, their soul. There's drama in our extended family. We don't know how to handle it. There's too many plates to keep spinning, right? I'm pretty sure they're all going to fall and, and shatter. That would be honest, but instead we say, no, we're doing great. Everything is fine. Or, you know, are we good? Is everything cool between us? Yeah, everything's fine. When an honest answer might be, no, there's growing tension between us. Right? I've been harboring deep-seated resentment for, for months in the aftermath of something that happened. It's not going away, but I'm afraid to address it because I don't have the boldness to confront you where you need to repent. I don't have the humility to acknowledge where I need to repent. I don't actually want to forgive you if you do repent. I'd rather hold on to it and let it uh, fester and let distance and coldness and bitterness kind of grow. And eventually I'm sure we'll probably just sever the relationship altogether and never talk to any never talk to each other again because that's preferable to communicating and practicing biblical repentance and forgiveness and and reconciliation but instead we say everything's great everything's fine so much of our communication lacks real honesty and so much of our prayers lack real honesty you find when you pray that there's kind of the obligatory phrases that you've been taught to say and the the cadence that you always you know say it you know you heard someone pray this way in this tone of voice with this cadence you know lord god thank you for this day whatever it is right like how, whatever the the cadence and the the kind of the just the the shape that your tone that your prayers uh instinctively take that aren't exactly honest because you're not even really thinking about what you're saying you're just kind of saying going through the motions da 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 right so much of our prayers look like that but if we were being honest we'd say god i i don't know where you are right now I don't know why you haven't answered this prayer of mine. I've been praying it for a long time. You seem to be ignoring you. Right, God, I'm, I'm frustrated. I, I, I'm frustrated at the lack of growth that I see in my own life and how little victory I see over sin in my life at how I respond instinctively in certain situations. God, I'm scared. I don't know if I have what it takes to persevere in the faith. When push comes to shove, I don't have real confidence that I actually love you more than I love the world. And I'm, I'm scared. I'm, I'm terrified by that. And I, and I need you. When Jesus prayed to his Father in the garden, he was honest. Dispensed with the formality. And communicated what he was really feeling and really experiencing to his father. I, I don't want to drink from this cup. I, I don't want to be betrayed by one of my closest friends who I depend on. I don't want to be denied by one of my closest friends. I don't want them to scatter and flee. I don't want to be arrested. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be tortured. I don't want to be murdered. I don't want to experience the wrath of God. I, I don't want any of that. Please don't make me do it. Jesus prayed honestly. And Jesus prayed uh, trustingly. There's honesty and trust in verse 42. Pray now, pray together, pray alone, pray honestly, pray trustingly. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Some of us aren't honest when we pray because it feels irreverent. It feels presumptuous. It feels disrespectful. We think that God will be angry at us if he hears us pray like that. But the key is we're not supposed to be just honest and that's it. As if that's the only mark of godly prayer is honesty. We're supposed to be honest and we're supposed to trust God. The ideal for our prayer life is not that we stop being honest out of fear of being irreverent. The ideal is that we communicate open and honestly with God and then we we punctuate that honesty with a dogged, ruthless trust in the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the will of God, the character of, of God. Right? If we're if our prayer life consists of us pretending to trust God, but we're not really being honest about who we are, what we're experiencing, what we're feeling, it's just fake. It's a it's a plastic smile, it's inauthentic, it's a waste of time. It's like it's like hiring an accountant to help you get your finances in order and then giving him fake documents that don't have the real numbers about your income and expenses and, and, and money. It's just a waste of time. If you're not being honest when you pray, it's a waste of, of time. But if we are being honest, but we're not trusting God in the midst of our honesty, then we run the risk of our prayers resembling a petulant toddler. Demanding, entitled, treating God like a vending machine. This is what I want. Give me the, how dare you not give me what I want the exact moment that I want it. It's honest. It's just not trusting God. It's submitting to God. It's not Christian prayer. If we're not, if we're not submitting to God and trusting God in the midst of the honesty of our prayers, then we're effectively saying, My will is better than your will. The world would be better off if I was in charge and running it instead of you running it. God, it's your job to conform to me, conform to my plan. It's not my job to conform to you or to your plan. God, you should be the one bowing down to me, laying prostrate before me, uh, praying to me, worshiping me. It's, it's idolatry and it's, it's blasphemy. Don't be fake or insincere or dishonest when you pray. That's a waste of time. But as you, uh, you know, as you're honest with God, trust Him. Recognize that He's God and you're not. Recognize that you would be better off if God does His will than if He were to do your will. And trust Him. Pray honestly and pray trustingly. Which gives us space, right? It gives us space to communicate, to, to vent and process, but it also reins it in and, and, and kind of tethers it to, to the character, right? Uh, God, I, I'm, I want you to help me get this job. I want to do it. I think I could glorify you in that role. It would be great for our family. I pray that you would provide for us. But even more than, than I want the job, I want your will to be done. 
God, I'm single. I want to be married. I read in your word that, that being married is a good thing. Right? I pray that you would help me to meet and find a godly spouse that I love. But whether you do or don't, I pray that you're, even if it means me being single my entire life, I pray that your will would be, would be done. Right? God, we want to have kids. We're struggling with infertility. We've experienced miscarriages. It'd be really hard. I don't know if we have the strength to endure another one. We read in your word that children are a gift from God. We pray that you would give us the gift of children. And whether you do or don't, we pray that your will would be done. Even if we never have biological children, right? Or... God, I pray that you would take care of my child. He's sick, suffering, uh, you know, being rushed to the emergency room with medical complications. We pray that he would live and not die, that he would have a long, full life so that we don't have to bury our child. And God, no matter what happens, we pray that your will would be done. We pray that we could uh, submit to and, and, uh, and merge with uh, and rejoice in your will. Life in this world is hard. It's incredibly hard. And we need to pray to persevere to get through it. If you pray without being honest, you're wasting your time. If you pray without trusting God, then it's no different than a non-believer praying to a false God that doesn't exist who's making demands about what he wants. Pray honestly. Pray trustingly. Like Jesus prayed. See the next slide in verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So Jesus just said, God, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's the most difficult moment of his entire life. And here's what God doesn't say. Sure, Jesus, no problem. You want the cup gone? The cup is gone. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to worry about any of that. I'll snap my fingers and it will magically disappear. God doesn't say any of that because prayer doesn't always get us out of the difficulty and the suffering that we're walking through. God doesn't promise to take our suffering away. He promises to be with us. To get us through it. The Father doesn't take the cup away from Jesus. The Father draws near to Jesus. The Father sends an angel from heaven, from His presence to minister to Jesus and strengthen Jesus. When you, when you pray, I don't know what you're thinking is going to happen as a result or what you're hoping is going to happen as a result or what you're expecting to happen. You're expecting some sort of inexplicable, supernatural miracle. For what it's worth, those things do happen from time to time. God answers prayers through incredible, unprecedented, supernatural intervention. But He's not obligated to do that. And in my experience, what He does far more frequently... He doesn't take away the cup. He doesn't take away the thing you're going through that you're praying about. He doesn't take it away. He just draws near to you in the midst of it. It helps you to persevere through it. He doesn't give you the gift of what you want, the thing you're praying for necessarily. He gives you the gift of His presence 
in the midst of it. Psalm 16, I think we have it on the screen, says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, this is uh, talking to God, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy is not found in the thing that I'm praying for. Fullness of joy is not found in my circumstances being changed or taken away. It's found in the presence of God. Eternal pleasure is found at the right hand of God. So when we pray and we communicate our concerns to God, we're trusting in the perfect will of God. We also recognize that at the end of the day, the best thing that God can do for us, the thing that we should be hoping for, is not necessarily for our desires and preferences to be met. It's for God to draw near to us and comfort us and strengthen us. It's what God the Father did to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then in verse 44, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus is there. He's praying honestly, trustingly. The Father has sent an angel to minister to him and to strengthen him. And even even with that angel ministering to him and strengthening him, Jesus is in intense, deep, unimaginable agony at the thought of going to the cross the next day. Sweating blood. Blood is is coming out of his sweat. This is a a medical condition called hematidrosis. Happens when your capillary vessels that feed the sweat glands uh, rupture and blood hemorrhages out of them. It makes its way into the sweat glands and then out into your skin. You literally sweat blood. It's very rare. When it does happen, it's caused by extreme physical or emotional stress, severe mental anxiety. That's what Jesus is experiencing. Extreme stress and anxiety considering his impending death on the cross. It's so bad, in fact, in Matthew and Mark, the parallel passages, Jesus says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. In other words, I am in such pain, such agony, the anxiety and the the stress is so bad right now, I don't even think I'm going to make it to the cross. I think I'm going to die right here in the garden the night before. The mere act of, of contemplating, just thinking about The depths of spiritual anguish that I am going to experience tomorrow on the cross is itself too much to bear. On the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God. He suffered more than any sinner ever will in hell. And it was so bad that the the mere act of thinking about it almost killed him. Prayer doesn't always make your situation easier. It's reductive and naive to think that it will. Or to think that you're entitled to having your situation be made easy because you you prayed. Sometimes you pray 
Sometimes you're in a difficult situation and you pray and the situation doesn't get any less different, difficult. The difference is that God meets you. God is there with you. God is drawing near to you. God is comforting you. God is strengthening you as you walk through that terribly difficult situation. Verse 45, when he arose, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Same thing, Matthew, uh, parallel passages, Matthew and Mark, he actually does this three times. He goes and prays, comes back and finds them sleeping, wakes them up, goes and prays again, finds them sleeping, wakes them up, goes and prays again, comes up three times, he finds them asleep and has to, to wake them up. Jesus is all alone. All of his friends either betray him, sell him into the hands of his enemy for, enemies for money, or they deny him and shrink back and pretend that they don't know him. Or they fall asleep because they're utterly indifferent to the intensity and the weight that he's experiencing. The only person that is there with him is his father and the angel that his father sent to strengthen him. And the worst part is, the next day on the cross, he won't even have that. God the Father will turn His back on His Son and pour out the fullness of His wrath on His Son and Jesus will absorb the wrath of God so that we can be spared from it. Jesus is all alone and tomorrow He will be even more alone as He suffers the punishment for sin in our place. And He knows it. And He feels it. And it drives him to pray. We would do well to watch and learn from his example. Pray now, right? Be cultivating habits of healthy prayer now so that you'll be ready in times of crisis. Pray together. Lean in with your church family and pray with them and for them. Pray alone. Carve out time and space for silence and solitude to meet with your Father. Pray honestly. Pray trustingly so that you can experience the presence of God so that it might help you persevere even through the most difficult circumstances in this life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to learn from the example of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Help us to take it in. Help us to feel the weight of it. Help us to feel the significance of it. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace to pray well. Lord, help us to be honest with you. Help us to trust in your goodness and in your sovereignty. Lord, help us to have zeal and faithfulness in our prayer lives, help us to glorify you through them and help us to edify one another through them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.